Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Religion. I'm your host. My name is Piotr Krasicki. I'm a professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. I am delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Professor Anna Grzyma-Abusa. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much. It's lovely to hear my name pronounced correctly. Uh, yeah, well, it's so <laughs> I'd, I'd be pretty upset with myself if I didn't get it right. Uh, also, because I've been following your books for years and years, and you've been pretty important in my own uh, intellectual trajectory. But uh, I w- will say a few words first, and then we'll come back uh, and actually converse. Uh, just by way of introduction, Anagjama Abusa is the Michelle and Kevin Douglas Professor of International Studies at Stanford University, where she is also Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spoli Institute for International Studies. Her books include, among many, Nations Under God, How Churches Use Moral Authority to Influence Policy, published with Princeton University Press. Uh, Anna Gjimabusa is a very distinguished scholar, commentator, and uh, cited voice in multiple fields of interest to me, including religious politics, religious foundations of politics, and the contemporary politics of Eastern Europe. And today we will be talking about the book that she published earlier this year with Princeton University Press entitled Sacred Foundations, The Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State. So if I may simply begin the conversation with a pretty broad-minded question, why did you write this book? Um, Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Um, As for why I wrote the book, I think, you know, so because I've always worked on the state, I've sort of always read and sort of received wisdom in political science, at least, about how the state was founded in Europe in the first place. And the story inevitably went something like this. You know, in the early modern period, we have this very intensive and very expensive warfare between states um, as they sort of start to centralize and consolidate. And this very expensive warfare has two effects. One, it kind of winnows out states. Um, It consolidates a few big ones and winnows out a whole bunch of small ones. And two, it really catalyzes parliaments and taxation because rulers need to extract resources to fight the war and they have to have some kind of a forum where they need to discuss sort of, you know, what the, the levels of extraction will be, what the levels of taxation would be with the nobles. But, you know, I took uh, medieval history in college. And I was also very cognizant of the fact that parliaments and taxation were around much, much earlier than this. Um, And if you look at this earlier time period, as I started to, um, it's not about interstate warfare. The most powerful geopolitical actor is the Roman Catholic Church. And that church plays a really important role, not just in fragmenting Europe, but also in providing the kind of institutional templates 
including parliaments, including taxation. And so if we want to look at the roots of these state institutions, we shouldn't look to sort of you know, the 17th century wars, but to a much earlier period where the church was establishing itself as an autonomous institutional force, where it played an enormous role as a geopolitical actor, and where in many ways it was an administrative and legal pioneer um, whose innovations would be adopted by rulers. And you know that's not to say that these are the same institutions that we see today. Um, in many cases, they're very inchoate, they're very malleable, but nonetheless, those roots lie in a much earlier time period than the received wisdom uh, would have us know. I, I confess I often, especially when I'm teaching the Catholic Church and its role in European history, end up talking about Pius IX. I end up talking about the various counter-reformation popes. Uh, it's, a, it's refreshing to reverse course a little bit and think about how in earlier periods the church uh, you use the word obsolescence at a certain point in your book, right? The sort of began reforming itself into obsolescence. Uh, I'm curious, just before we get into the, the actual argument of the book, in terms of how you understand the relationship between the medieval and the modern. And you just gave a few very specific examples, which I love about the book. And I think it makes the book a very good conversation piece across disciplines. There, it, there's a story, but there are nuts and bolts to it. And it, the theory's there if someone wants to scratch beneath the surface. But at the end of the day, there are stories about universities. There are stories about taxes. There are stories about political institutions. And there are also biographies of the different popes. I, I really enjoyed getting into the different uh, nitty gritty and what you call the unsavory practices that uh, sometimes helped, sometimes hurt. But how much modern to the extent you feel comfortable applying that word to the medieval period really was there in your story. Right. So, you know, I think if we were to transport ourselves into the 13th century, um, we wouldn't be talking about the state. We wouldn't be talking necessarily even about the secular. Um, I think the relevant categories would be authority and lordship, the exercise of order and justice, which were the most important um, aspects to any sort of new local authority, we will be talking much more less about, we'll talk much less about national identities and God forbid the nation state, and much more about sort of various rulers, a panoply of rulers broadcasting their power um, in various ways, trying to maintain order, asserting themselves vis-a-vis -vis each other, um, and again, trying to above all deliver law and justice. Those are the sort of you know, first and foremost. For many of us, we would see our local authority as a bishop. It, the bishop would play a dual role, both as a papal emissary, a spiritual emissary, and also a local administrator, a local judge, someone who also delivered justice and sort of carried temporal power with them. So it was a, it's a very different world. I think we see, again, some of these roots of parliamentary representation, of taxation and auditing, of certainly of universities and education, which probably show the greatest continuity from this time. Um, but it would be a world where modern categories of state, secular, um, would simply not be comprehensible um, in the way that they were, that they are to us today. Thank you. I mean, you mentioned in your first answer that uh, your experience as an undergraduate may be sort of sowed the seeds that that then you know germinated some time later. I wonder if I could take you back for a second to Princeton. You open your acknowledgments with Peter Brown and Bill Jordan, and I'm curious what 
if anything specifically about your experience of taking courses, reading in medieval history stayed with you, if I could ask that way, before we circle back to the details of the book. Sure. I think, you know, from Peter Brown, I took the idea that the so-called Dark Ages, the 7th through the 10th centuries, were anything but, right? I think that is one of his most important contributions to make us rethink this period that's usually sort of seen as this black gap between the fall of the Roman Empire and the so-called Middle Ages, right? And this period from about 700 to 1000 is actually incredibly rich in history. And he really taught me the importance of sort of, you know, looking where others aren't, to not assume that there's simply a gap, that there's simply sort of a lack of history. Um, from Bill Jordan, I took a great appreciation for constitutional history and the ways in which he sort of really, you know, I took a course on him on um, medieval constitutional history, and he really made alive this world of developing law, of developing sort of new legal structures, of the ways in which kings use the law, especially in England, to establish their authority. You know, the sort of roving judges that basically went across England, where they both delivered justice and reminded everyone that it's the king's justice, it's the royal authority. And it was an amazing way of both sort of you know, delivering both dispute education, adjudication on the one hand and administ administrative centralization on the other. So, you know, those early seeds that um, these two wonderful, wonderful professors planted um, have sort of germinated over a long time. Um, but you can see their traces um, in this book as well. Yeah, I think they're they're woven throughout, not least. And it's a wonderful thing also about parenthetical citations. I see the number of Jordan citations as yes. I move through the book. Uh, I, one point about geography that I wanted to bring in, and I mean, we're both among others, Poland specialists, Poland adjacent scholars. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I know you've done a lot of podcasts about this book. I don't know if Poland has come up very much, but I'm curious to what extent uh, the geographical matrix really matters mm. for you in terms of the kind, because you start with some opening comments, which I think are really important for sort of opening to the book to a cross-field, cross-disciplinary audience about how religion has not been necessarily taken seriously or seriously enough in accounts of political development. And then I think also that part of the story that's missing is that there's a very kind of canonical geography, which is a function of specializations. There are people out there doing it and you do a really amazing job of tracking down all the English language works published at the Catholic University of Lublin and incorporating them into <laughs> not, your bibliography. <laughs> that's true. No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to say that it's only English, but my point is that a lot of the English hasn't actually been published in the Anglophone scholarly universe and really is very hard to access for scholars based, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the in the British or the US system. So I'm curious, how important is it to look farther east in terms of constructing a story like you have? You know, I think what's fascinating here is that Poland, Hungary, and Scandinavia are all, you know, now they're seen as very much, you know, different geopolitical regions in the sense that, you know, somehow Scandinavia is more developed and democratic, and Poland and Hungary, of course, are seeing kind of laggards in development thanks to all the years of communism. But at the time, they're really sort of seen as part of the same periphery, where Bishops actually play an incredibly important role in sort of, you know, determining uh, the administrative structures where they advise kings, where they basically serve a certain, you know, in, especially in Scandinavia. Scandinavia is actually politically much less developed um, at this time than Poland and Hungary, where you basically have sort of, you know, the wholesale importation of papal templates, where bishoprics sort of, you know, determine administrative divisions um, and so on. Um, I think the 
in, interesting role that these sort of this whole area plays is that this is really where the nobles are much more powerful than the kings um, as a collective. And so they exact all kinds of concessions from kings in ways that we see, for example, in England only happen in the 17th century, right, with the Glorious Revolution. And, you know, they, the popes, the, sorry, the kings are elected. Um, the nobles very much insist on their rights. There are local regional parliaments, not just a central national one. So it's a region that at this point basically um, serves as a showcase for the balance of power between the nobility and the rulers and the ways in which the nobles keep insisting on their rights vis-a-vis -vis the ruler. Now, that over time becomes highly problematic because it you know, sort of degenerates into the Librum Veto and all that. Um, but at this time, it really is a way of sort of keeping the, the rulers in check. Um, and it's entirely done by these nobles who have their own independent bases of power. And that's what kind of unites this region. Um, in both Poland and Hungary, the nobles play a really powerful role. I, I promise not to dwell too much on Eastern Europe, but I, I, I am very glad you brought up the Liberum Veto. I was thinking about you know, the, 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 the point you make throughout the book about how friendly the papacy is, not just friendly, but in fact insistent on elections uh, as a practice for very specific reasons related to canon law as well as tactic. Um, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is a kind of a dream in some sense, in terms of this, this uh, increasingly weak, increasingly uh, unstable, part, precisely because of the repeated electoral practice. And yet, of course, you know, the papacy, I mean, obviously, I don't want, this, this gets us into the early modern period, but the, it, it strikes me that the papacy is friendliest in some ways to uh, kingly regimes that don't follow its model. England, you, you make this point repeatedly. France is more complicated. The Iberian Peninsula also has its own story. But the Iberian Peninsula and England can hardly be accused of being made in the mold of what you're describing. That's right. Um, so, you know, I think when it comes to England, what's interesting is that, you know, the papacy is incredibly strategic. Of course, it gets many things wrong, but it's very strategic in how it picks its battles. And with England, you know, basically once the conquest of England is blessed by the Pope, England's largely left alone because the sort of papal nightmare is that somehow England will ally with the Holy Roman Emperor against the papacy. Um, and because England is relatively, you know, it's kind of this uniquely powerful, uniquely centralized uh, country in the region. Um, as far as the papacy is concerned, you know, it's best really kept out of, uh, out of sort of, you know, it's out of the sort of the geopolitics of Europe itself. And so you're right, the papacy largely leaves England alone. It develops its own common law. It develops, you know, a very centralized administration early on. It does borrow. It borrows from the papacy, you know, canon law, as one analyst put it, leaks in um, into the civil law in England, not the common law, but the civil law. And you do see sort of, you know, picking up of some of the administrative templates from the papacy. But by and large, that's an independent um, development. But, you know, the papacy, again, as I pointed out, is would love to see elections everywhere because that limits royal power. But it really sort of, you know, has to count on local nobles to enforce that. And this is why you have elections where the nobles are powerful. So in the Holy Roman Empire, in Poland and in Hungary, wherever you see powerful nobles, papal wishes uh, or papal desiderata for, um, for elections are basically upheld. You just mentioned the Holy Roman Empire. I, I think that is one of the most striking features of the book for me. Uh, the, I, the, the exact phrasing is that uh, the chief enemy 
right? I think in the in the in your second chapter, you you describe the Holy Roman Empire as the papacy's chief enemy, which makes sense in given in the overall arc, and yet. Seen from a distance, the Holy Roman Empire, especially uh, sort of misrepresented through the lens of the 16th century, <laughs> gets a completely different reputation. So I'm curious if, I mean, obviously, you dwell at you dwell at this at some length in the book because it's it's very important uh, to the longitudinal consequences you're describing. But the fact that the Holy Roman Empire was so different from other European monarchies, and likewise uh, really came to embody these features of weakness, institutional weakness and fragmentation that really the papacy was trying to push. Uh, it, it, do you see that as a success story of the papacy or maybe a paradox? I, I, I don't know, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but, but how would you kind of sum that up given what happened in the 1500s? Right. Well, you know, I think in the medieval period, I think initially, first of all, you know, the Holy Roman Empire played such an important role. It wasn't known as the Holy Roman Empire, of course, until much later. But um, in the 11th century and earlier, those rulers played such an important role in both naming popes and in protecting the papacy um, in some ways. But basically, with Gregory VII, there's this sort of, you know, assertion of papal reform. That you know we're going to clean house. We're going to assert our autonomy. We're going to you know establish much more of a hierarchy with the Pope at the apex rather than Rome being a backwater the way it was until then. And part of that meant freeing itself from the Holy Roman Empire, right? The investiture conflict, nominally about the naming of bishops by the emperor or by the pope, is fundamentally really about asserting those separate spheres of authority, the temporal and the ecclesiastical. Um, and so the reason why you know, the Holy Roman Empire in the Middle Ages becomes a chief enemy, if you will, of the papacy um, has much less to do with some kind of a religious difference or with anything like that. It simply has to do with the feeling that the papacy knows that in order to continue as an autonomous geo geopolitical force, in order to continue to preserve its independence, um, it can't basically be ruled by the Holy Roman Emperors. And the Hohenstaufens, you know, to their credit or to their blame, keep insisting on basically making this pincer movement across the Alps. And so, you know, coming in from the north to the Papal States and then from the south via the Kingdom of Sicily. So it's not surprising that the popes would devote so much time and so much effort to basically repelling the, what they see as an attack. You know, Henry IV famously gets excommunicated five times by three different popes, precisely to um, to prevent him from you know furthering these efforts. Um, and you know, this is where the basically papal conflict takes on a very different form where popes are you know, trying to depose emperors, where they're excommunicating them, they're forming alliances, they're funding wars by proxy, everything to basically keep the Holy Roman Empire on the other side of the Alps and away from the papal states um, and both sort of the realm of papal um, spiritual and temporal authority. So they're an enemy mostly because they have, they're just as ambitious as the papacy is starting with you know, the 11th and 12th centuries. Clearly, there are a lot of balls in the air at this particular moment, right? So, I'm, 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 and I, I, when I was rereading your book, I was thinking to myself, to how to square the periodization of the story of the of law with the story of the parliaments, with the story you were just referencing. For example, the different strategies for fragmentation and for diminishing imperial power. And I remember quite clearly. And of course, the striking thing about Henry is he could care less about being excommunicated for the most part, and it didn't really touch him as a ruler. And yet, the first, the first. First time it did, right? Well, <laughs> After that, it didn't. <laughs> 
he's such a I mean, obviously it's hard it's hard to make an example of him but the centrality to his uh, his centrality to your periodization of the story really actually had had me thinking for a second about that relationship between let's say the italian lands and the germanic lands uh, and you, you make a point and I, I don't necessarily want to read too much into it but again you know, i come to this conversation uh for better or worse as a modernist so why it, it so these things, these statements do catch my attention. We're saying basically the papacy, I'm actually, I think I'm quoting from you here. The papacy was so successful that it took until the mid 19th century for Germany and Italy to unify as states. And I was thinking, do Bismarck and Cavour have, uh, let's say, you know, Gregory VII to thank? That's a silly way of posing the question, but it strikes me that there is a certain kind of feature of fragmentation that facilitates, for example, and you, you talk about this at some length, the emergence of the papal states and the papacy as its own uh, sort of secular state formation process. And that is something that I can reframe in terms of Pope Pius IX in the 19th century and make sense of the decline of the process whose arc you're charting at the start. So uh, it, it, you were just talking about the Hohenstaufens. They're a pretty striking case because they just won't stop. And that's part of the reason also they become the enemies. Do you feel like it uh, works uh, without, I mean, you need that consolidation of the, paper, of the papal states in order to make sense of the fragmentation around them? Or is it really merely a, a sort of a mosaic that incorporates the other elements so that, you know, I can't ask this question in a monocausal way without going back to canon law? That's right. And and to be fair, you know, I, I am this is very much tracing in social science terms. What I'm doing here is tracing the effect of a particular cause that is sort of, you know, the papal efforts without in any way suggesting that state formation is monocausal. I fully, you know, fully grant that. But I, what I would say is that, you know, what happens is that to sustain the threat of fragmentation in Europe, the popes act as an initial catalyst. Um, and basically, you know, the emperors, many of the emperors spend more of their time outside of the Holy Roman Empire than in fighting all these battles, trying to get Northern Italy, trying to get, you know, establish control over Sicily. Um, they're constantly sort of, you know, fighting. And what that does is open up a power vacuum within the Holy Roman Empire. So precisely at a time where you see centralization in England and sort of a nascent expansion of authority in France, where, you know, in Spain, you see kind of, you know, the, the Muslims being pushed all the way back down, um, again, with an assertion of authority by secular rulers. In the Holy Roman Empire, what you see instead is kind of the central authority busy fighting wars and trying to convince the nobles to come with him um, and selling off his land, right, selling off the fisc in order to finance this war. And what that means is that what you have is the establishment of all kinds of bishop princes, local dukes, local princes as the main sort of local authorities, and they are not going to give up that power. And so what happens in northern Italy with the towns that arise in the vacuum of, in the power vacuum and in the Holy Roman Empire with these bishops and bishop princes and dukes is that even when <clears throat> excuse me, the Holy Roman Emperor comes back and wants to assert its power, it's too late. This, you know, the most of the state establishment or of the state formation in the Holy Roman Empire goes on at the regional level, at the level of these principalities. That's where the power is. These, you know, these men um, raise taxes, they uh, provide justice, they provide security, um, they administer the, their sort of, you know, little regions, and they will not give up power to the Holy Roman Emperor.
So the one time where you see kind of a centralizing effort is around the turn of the 16th century from about 1495 to 1520. Um, there are all kinds of reforms that are supposed to sort of, you know, systematize taxation, provide for greater parliaments for, uh, at the national level, provide for more central uh, sort of adjudication of disputes, and almost all of them fail because the princes and the prince bishops claw back that power and they insist not just on imperial elections, but they insist that you know, the locus of power, the locus of authority is going to be on that regional level. And that means that you know, the Holy Roman Empire will remain fragmented even when the popes are no longer powerful, right? So by the 14th, 15th century, where you have the schisms, where you have the multiple popes, um, where you have Sergio you know, Sigismund uh, basically adjudicating papal disputes, by that point, you know, that locus of power has shifted to the um, to sort of the local authorities. They're not giving up that power. And the Holy Roman Empire will remain fragmented and will remain sort of without a strong central authority well into the 19th century. And it takes, you know, the combined efforts of Napoleon and Bismarck to change that. Yeah, thank you. I, I want to dwell on authority for a moment and actually peg it to a specific concept, which I mean, you, you use throughout the book, and it, it immediately drew my attention for, for several different reasons. But uh, you mentioned at one point that uh, concepts of sovereignty are a medieval innovation, and the popes very much figure centrally. I, I mean, I, I, I would look at this as a historian of ideas, but clearly in terms of forming templates and exporting those templates, the the actual notion of sovereignty, I think this, this, this what you were just saying, is it's enormously compelling, the way you show in the book how sovereignty just really couldn't work. I, I mean, at least in the in the context we were just discussing of, of the Holy Roman Empire, because of the interactions and because of the, the regional and, and local dynamics among, among various other factors. I, I, I have to say there was a voice in the back of my head when I was reading your book, asking myself, partly again, because I'm a modernist, but uh, I, I have to ask, did the name Carl Schmidt cross your mind at all when you were writing your book, right? That, uh, I, and I, I, that you know, secularized political concepts, secularized theological concepts, political theology, because there are various incarnations of political theology. I was thinking at one point of, I mean, you refer, Kantarovich is in your references, the, the, of the king's two bodies, but with Schmidt in particular, this idea of empowering in decisionist terms, this secular authority emulating, I guess the Pope is the question mark there, uh, but not to inject something into your story that you didn't want there or don't see there. I, I, I have to ask though, because I think that really helps in bridging the medieval to early modern to modern genealogy, at least for, uh, for a non-political scientist like me. Right. Um, so, you know, I stay away from Schmidt. I stay away from political theology. Um, I stay away from absolute authority, which is sort of, you know, what his whole concept is about, right? The sort of you know, absolute uh, authority to decide. Um, and so I stay away from all that, partly because I don't think it's it does much to explain what was happening in the Middle Ages, right? These are such much, you know, the, there are no absolutist statements at this time. Yes, the popes claim universal power, but even so, that you know that is highly limited, right? They only claim them in specific circumstances. They claim sort of authority over souls, but especially after the investiture conflict, no pope would claim sort of you know, authority over over sovereigns. And when they try to assert any kind of sort of you know more you know, stronger statements of of authority, they're immediately slapped down, right? Um, Boniface, you know, the the atheist is sort of a stellar example of what happens when you 
expect too much from um, from basically secular rulers. If you, you know, expect that you can exercise authority over bishops or you, you ex and can exercise authority over taxation. Um, in his particular case, you know, you basically have a furious Philip IV send his henchmen and terrify you into dying prematurely. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, when I talk about sovereignty here, what the, the story I tell isn't about sort of, you know, sovereignty as we understand it, right? It's very simple. I mean, Innocent III, basically decides that another one of his weapons against uh, the Holy Roman Empire will be to point out to rulers that they are not beholden to the Holy Roman Emperor. That just because, you know, this is someone who calls himself a Holy Roman Emperor doesn't mean that he actually exercises that kind of authority. And what the Pope tells various other rulers is that, you know, every ruler in his kingdom is an, uh, is an emperor. They should not have to recognize any superior claims on that. And of course, the rulers very eagerly take them take this up. This is certainly a very useful, um, a very sort of useful uh, sort of claim against uh, imperial demands. On the one hand, on the other hand, over time they start using this against the Pope as well, right? Innocent III told us we should not recognize a superior power, and we know that the Church ex exercises ecclesiastical but not temporal power. So who is the Pope to tell us how to run our countries? Um, and that, to me, is the interesting story here, right? It has less to do with the sort of Schmidtian abstractions of absolute power and its assertion of when law holds and when it doesn't, and much more to do with, again, this kind of bricolage, this sort of you know, willy-nilly picking up of you know, whatever is useful um, by rulers um, and by popes as they sort of you know, assert power and figure out where the boundaries of that power lie. I, the, the messiness is, is really quite striking. So the chapter on law, I have to say that I mean, okay, so so I'm familiar with the extent to which canon law is penetrated. Obviously, you know, the, midi the, the 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 scholastic tradition of natural law has become so central throughout the centuries in in European civil law. But by the same token, the willy nilly or the piecemeal or opportunistic—I don't know what 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 adjective you would like most—adaptation of canon law. I guess I, I I would have to ask to what extent. I mean, maybe there isn't a good single answer here. But um, part of the reason why Schmidt had occurred to me is that it seemed like in the law itself, there was the potential for trying to uh, search for theological legacies and theological foundations. And theology isn't necessarily something, correct me if I'm wrong, please, that seems to interest you very much in the book, uh, per se. Canon law, yes. Practices of authority, yes. But it didn't necessarily matter beyond the, let's say, the, the justifications for the Crusades, etc. Right. So in that sense, maybe I, I would be barking up the wrong tree if I were looking for theology in these legal legacies that had been absorbed, transmitted, etc. Right. And I think, you know, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. The, there's very little theology in this book. And that's partly because the church self-consciously um, basically separates theology from canon law, right? That's one, that's a medieval innovation that those two bodies are now kept separate in ways that, for example, the Islamic Caliphate doesn't do, right? Um, and so for the church, you know, canon law basically takes off as an independent branch of inquiry and reasoning in ways that are totally different from sort of theological and doctrinal statements and exegesis. Um, and so for that reason, there's very little theology here. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, I guess because I'm a political scientist, I view the church in this book mostly as a geopolitical actor, as opposed to as you know, as spiritual authority and the savior of souls, who's also very concerned with developing a new theology of salvation, and especially when it's challenged by first the heretics, then by the Reformation. Um, but for the story of the development of the law, you know, one of the sort of starting points is the separation of theology from canon law. 
as being in entirely two domains. Thank you so much. I I, I, I want to come back for a second. I know this is going to maybe seem like a naive question since we're already deep into the discussion, but the word church. In your introduction, you talk about the word state as a synecdoche. And I was thinking church is a pretty uh, pretty capacious synecdoche too uh, in your book. So uh, if I may, now that you've, you know, sort of the book is done and out and you've talked about it a lot, uh, looking back, do you feel like it's more a story about uh, institutional component pieces of the sort of big umbrella that covers the church or, because the, the popes as individual actors, and, and not even forget, forgetting the popes for a second, those canon lawyers who trained in Bologna or Oxford, they mattered as individuals in, in your story. They clearly matter too. So, um, or something like the College of Cardinals created in 1059, which you bring that back over and over again to mark an innovation, human capital, institutional innovation. Is it the dynamic nature Maybe I'm I, 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 again. I'm sorry not to put words in your mouth, but revisiting this terrain is there a, a kind of one sentence snapshot you would give for what is church in this period? Absolutely not. I don't think it's possible, right? The church is the papacy. The church are, are the bishops. Um, the church are the monasteries. Which and there's a another book by Jürgen uh, Müller and Jonathan Doucette that examines sort of you know the spread, for example, of Cluny reforms and the role they played in local self governance. Um, it is the faithful which you know, are largely missing from this story, right? Um, it is the papacy, it is its relation, it is its emissaries, it is, you know, the missy who travel, uh, one sort of, you know, one a, a clergyman, another one a secular uh, administrator that travel all around the Holy Roman Empire to administer them. That, you know, the church is so many different things and it wouldn't be enough to just list them because the relations between them are also very complicated, right? So my friend and co colleague, Rowan Doran, has this absolutely beautiful, um, article about the ways in which bishops would interpret, you know, we have this notion of the papacy laying down the law and laying down the bulls and basically sending it out all over Europe. But it turns out that bishops would then read that and edit away, right? The bishops would edit it to basically favor their own circumstances, add a bit here, subtract a bit there. And eventually, you know, the document that is seen by the faithful, by other priests, is something very, very different from what the popes had sent from Rome. And so, you know, I think of the church as this kind of Pulating organization with sort of you know competing claims and competing sort of you know authorities with actors at every single level that are sort of running back and forth across you know the hallways of the curia trying to get their petitions done and trying to sort of you know prevent other petitions from being heard, and so what you know the what I call the church here is a stand-in for such an incredibly complicated organization um, and it's sort of you know, a whole set of social relations that if I were to describe it properly, it would probably take, you know, 24 volumes um, rather than a 180 page book. I, I, I Maybe not 24, but if you want to write a few more, I'd be fascinated to hear about <laughs> the other components of the story. I, I will zoom in maybe on one subset of the term though, and national churches, because it is a phrase that's important uh, in a number of different respects and a number of different pillars of your, of, of your argument in the book. And I, I guess I'm revisiting the terrain we covered earlier when we were talking about England to some extent. Uh, in uh, in my own work, I, I can attest to the fact that in the modern period, when uh, Catholic intellectuals talk about national churches, they will often talk about Gallicanism. And there's a reason for that, obviously, because Gallicanism survived the, the, the Reformation and, and in some ways uh, provided France with a get out of a jail free card <laughs> throughout the modern period. But 
that being said, reading your book, I think to myself, geez, England is so much more Gallican than the Gauls <laughs> in, in the period you're writing about. So if we could sort of just talk for a second about what really um, a benchmark would be for thinking about the strengths of the emergence of national churches. Uh, Henry VIII obviously is a sui generis in so many ways, right? But a lot of your book is building toward the 1500s and that redistribution of authority. So national churches are clearly a part of big part of that story. So, you know, I, I'm not sure if I would call them national churches per se. What I would call them are sort of, you know, different settlements between the papacy and the rulers. So in some places, you know, the popes insist that, um, you know, that, that insist on much sort of greater adherence to papal uh, pronouncements than in other places. An ideal example here is the investiture conflict, right? So the in one telling of the story, the investiture conflict, which, as I mentioned earlier, was about the, you know, it's nominally about the naming of bishops. And so the one version of this is that this is all settled in Worms at 1122, that you know, from this on, there's a settlement. The popes invest the bishops with their spiritual regalia, and the secular rulers with their secular authority. But the truth is that you know this is a much more complicated story. And what the popes do is to sort of tactically make settlements. And so, even though they're insisting on this kind of you know assertion of authority in England, basically the the kings get to name their bishops for the longest time, and basically throughout, right? They're largely left alone. The settlement isn't enforced in England in any in nearly the same way that it's in that it's in that the popes try to enforce it in the Holy Roman Empire. In France, it comes and goes again, depending on what the pope wants from the ruler and which ruler, right? Because of course, it's you know power is only being consolidated in one king in France over time. And so, you know, the way that I would rather than talking about national churches, I think I would talk about sort of you. Know, temporary settlements between the papacy and the rulers and the kind of room to maneuver that they leave for each other. Um, and, you know, some cases the kings fight back, right? Philip IV certainly fought back against uh, Boniface's assertions of power and assertions of authority within France. So it's less a question of, you know, national churches in the medieval period, because the very phrase national doesn't make much sense. It's much more about the sort of, you know, temporary settlements between the papacy and the rulers over sort of where the boundaries lie of papal influence and temporal authority. It seems, uh, going through your book, the, uh, most of these settlements are ad hoc and evolving and dynamic. There are, I mean, so there was one, I, I, I forget if it was in chapter two or uh, chapter one, but the, there's a passage where you talk about national churches and concordates. And I was thinking about concordates in part also because it's another one of those mechanisms that survives and takes on a life of its own in the, in the late modern period. But concordates, again, in the, the medieval period, really, I mean, in some sense, okay, the, 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 we're talking about the genesis of, 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 of this type of solution, but it's mutually unintelligible with a kind of concordate that establishes diplomatic recognition in the international system. So is, is, is a concordate simply a version of what you were just describing, uh, i.e. one kind of ad hoc arrangement that a pope can come to, or one way of formalizing, quote unquote, unofficially, unofficially, the ad hoc arrangement? Uh, or was there something more to it that we can say, aha, this really is important in understanding, again, church state is an anachronism, but the dynamics of secular state interaction in the formation of the modern European state. 
you know, to me, what's different about these settlements from what came before is the fact that they hold the status of a legal agreement, right? So in an earlier medieval period, agreements would be, you know, public, uh, would be made publicly via handshake, and the witnesses would basically make the, make the, um, the agreement legitimate and you know give it some kind of enforcement. In this period, by the time we, by the time we reach 12th century, after we the rediscovery of Roman law and the systematization of canon law and this kind of legal blossoming, what you have are signed documents that carry with them the force of law, right? It's a legal agreement as opposed to a public sort of spectacle. Um, so I think that's what's interesting. Their content isn't about diplomatic recognition um, or about sort of, you know, who gets to run education in what places the way they are today. They're much more about sort of, you know, short-lived agreements about taxation, um, about sort of, you know, where the bishoprics will lie, about sort of, you know, who gets to charter a given university. And so they're much more, you know, they're much more, I think, nitty gritty than sort of, you know, the more uh, the greater abstractions of the early modern period and and later, so again these are not necessarily ad hoc, but they're you know what they are are legal documents which makes them different, but they're not very you know I don't think they're very similar to what we see as the congregates of today right they simply don't carry with them the same kind of force of two political authorities uh, basically agreeing on how their respective nations will recognize each other or will recognize each other's um, authority. So I, I'm going to pivot for a second. Thank you to, to what you describe as unsavory practices uh, that serve the popes well in certain contexts and uh, whether we're talking about the sale of offices or indulgences, uh, because it seems that there was a profound influence of those practices as well, uh, following especially the uh, <clears throat> the creation of the Avignon Papacy and 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 then as part of the way of resolving the the Great Schism. So, to what extent can we talk? I mean, I guess I I don't mean to dwell on the adjective, but I'm just curious when you were talking about sale of offices or indulgences as unsavory practices. Did you mean it in a moral sense or did you mean it in the way that it's worth reflecting on what the transfer of those practices or the emulation of those practices among state rulers meant uh, more generally than and long term? I call them unsavory and I realize that may come off as flippant, but I call them unsavory because they're unsavory in two different ways. Um, one is that they corrupt the very authority that's being sold. And when it comes to indul indulgences, you know, popes are being criticized, bishops are being criticized by their contemporaries for selling salvation, right? And for selling offices rather than having the best person occupy that spot. But above all, you know, selling indulgences was something that was widely criticized within the church by the faithful um, who saw this as, in effect, sort of, you know, cheapening uh, salvation, which, again, for Catholics is earned through good works, right? Um, so it's basically sort of, you know, selling selling what ought never ought to be sold. Um, so I think it's unsavory in that sense. And it's unsavory because it's corrupting the very, you know, it's when it when it's transferred from the papacy to um to secular authority, it corrupts us just as much, right? And you know, on one hand, I think there are some great accounts like Julie Adams's and others about sort of how the sale of offices, these kind of quasi-corrupt practices actually sustained authority. But in the long run, they very much undermine um sort of public faith and what that authority ought to look like. Thanks very much. Uh, the, let's see, I, I, I have maybe one or two more questions about the book, and then I want to hear what you're working on now. But the, 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 
the last couple of things that I wanted to ask have to do maybe with zooming out a little bit and, and circling back to this question about the role that religion should play in conversations about political development more generally. And the way that I want to get to that is by asking you a question about causality and it, how you sort of felt uh, what what your, 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 your own sort of mental scaffolding was when you were thinking about what you needed in order to make causal claims about a particular transfer or a, a particular aggregation of data sets that you had observed uh, in a way that then you know takes this synecdoche of church or religion or papacy and actually opens it up to the broader scholarly conversation in the field. Um, so, you know, I, the, I think there's two bits of, or two sort of sets of evidence that I interrogate. One are the sort of, you know, large end data sets where I collected a whole bunch of both existing and my own data on everything from the prevalence of monasteries to the prevalence of papal conflict um, in the Middle Ages and beyond. And those I don't use to establish causation as much as to show that there are these general associations, these broad patterns in the data that are consistent with my argument, but they're not dispositive. And they're not dispositive largely because of course, the, you know, the data is not missing at random. Um, I don't have a sort of pristine causal identification strategy. Um, we have a lot of problems the further back we go with the data and with the sources. And so those, if anything, are just suggestive confirmations of what I argue largely through basically reading of the, you know, the secondary sources. And here, you know, at every point, what I wanted to establish was that if these templates truly travel from the church to the state administrations, to these nascent state administrations, then we need to have an account that stipulates that, you know, A, the church came up with this first. What is the origin of these templates and institutions? B, who transforms them? Who sort of, you know, transports them from Rome or from the church to the secular rulers? And three, is there evidence of a self-conscious adaptation of these, um, either by bishops who serve as, you know, as high-ranking church, as, as high-ranking royal administrators, or by other forces? And so those are sort of the three standards um, with which I would interrogate this story of, you know, emulation and diffusion. Where, you know, do the origins lie in the church? Are there sort of agents of transmission? And in this, is there sort of new evidence of this actually being adapted from the church and not from other sources? Um, and, you know, I, I don't think I can, I nail down the story. This, the sources are simply too thin. Um, but I think that, you know, again, this is very much a suggestive account that tries insofar as it's possible to demonstrate this. I, I, I you know, I, I think in, in some respects, the introduction felt very modest to me. I, I, you, I like the way that you approached also the phrasing of the of the sections, right? Taking Tilly to church. I thought that's one of the loveliest phrases I've seen in an academic uh, book. But the reason I, I, I say modest also is that there are very powerful implications, I think, also crossing over multiple time periods. So in this this was the, the, the way that I want to end talking about the book itself, which is that most of your scholarship has been about the modern era. So when you read yourself, do you recognize lessons for, you know, Grzmałabuse, the earlier or the later that you want to draw that are specific? That, let, 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 let me think about how to phrase this, because obviously this question will sound different and the answer would be different depending on which field you're talking to. But in a more general sense, I find that there are particular conclusions that you've drawn 
and particular stories you have about the mid the medieval era that really helped me to make sense of certain phenomena that I observe in the modern era. So I'm just wondering if you found something similar rereading your own book after it was published. Um, I confess I haven't reread that book yet. <laughs> it's too, it's too <laughs> but um, you know, what I would say is, um, are two things. I think that what the one important lesson is that concepts change their value, right? It is simply incoherent to talk about states and power and the church um, in the Middle Ages in the way that scholars very freely do right now. Um, the second thing that, I, you know, so I think, you know, the, the kind of the, the value of concepts changes over time and we really have to be careful about having these highly anachronistic analyses. And I try very hard not to do that. But of course, you know, it sneaks in. And for that, I apologize to all historians reading it. Um, I think the second thing would be sort of avoiding teleology. Um, you know, I, again, try very hard to avoid the idea that somehow, you know, the Protestant Reformation was an, an inevitable outcome of what the church is doing. Um, or somehow that, you know, that it, this was, you know, the, the modern state as we see it now was an inevitably um, sort of the result of this kind of diffusion. And I think at least for political scientists, building in contingency like that, building that's kind of, you know, that almost analytical modesty is a hard sell. We tend to think in terms of sort of causal relationship between variables that are literally sort of, you know, blocks or concepts almost, um, that to historians are almost unintelligible. And a lot of times I think political scientists get accused as a result of both monocausality and of teleology. Um, and I try very hard in this book to avoid that, but, you know, it is a, I think, a, a warning to my future self, at least, to be even more careful in the future. I, I, I really, I mean, so, so to, to take whatever I say with a grain of salt, because I'm an outsider in multiple respects, but by the same token, I really think that this is a book that can serve very, very well, particularly for interdisciplinary seminars. So in multi-track, cross-track seminars, I, I would love to, 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 to read this book with my students, precisely for the reasons that you just articulated. And, 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 and I, you know, maybe I should have asked this question more explicitly. You know, when you were a graduate student, I don't know if you imagined potentially writing a book like this, but um, if you were, I'm sure maybe you have already spoken to graduate students who have read parts of the book or have read the entire book and have said, how do I even begin thinking about something like this? Um, I don't know, do you have any particular advice? Obviously time. <laughs> yes, time time is, you know, so so this book was largely written during COVID um, where, you know, we have, we have three kids. And so time was precious, um, but it was kind of magical to write it during that time, precisely because there were whole days where I could just fall into, you know, the rabbit hole of medieval history um, while my husband took care of the kids. Um, I think, yes, time and sort of analytical distance um, that gives one, I think, modesty. Um, I think, you know, I am very humbled by all the work of medieval historians who came before me without whom this work would be impossible. And reading them, I really get a sense of the kind of, you know, extraordinary efforts that made this book even remotely possible. Um, ones that I certainly couldn't have undertaken myself. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's, I think this could have been a dissertation project um, by someone, probably not me, but by someone. But I think it's also evidence, I think, you know, in um, you acquire skills and you acquire an analytical humility over, over time. And hopefully then when you approach bigger projects, you're better equipped to appreciate um, 
just what a huge task a task you've set out for yourself and how the answer will necessarily be incomplete. I think that's you know sort of my biggest takeaway is that this is this is a book where the answer is necessarily incomplete, and I just have to live with that. I think that's a lesson that maybe we, everybody in the business should repeat to themselves on a daily basis. It would certainly help us feel better about ourselves. But it's also, I, I think, sobering because you know, we need colleagues to carry on, and students above all, to carry on the torch. Uh, if I may switch gears completely, thank you so much. I mean, it's been lovely discussing the book with you. Uh, unless, you know, I resist the temptation to, 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 to ask you about 21st century Polish politics, but I'm, I'm just curious, what are you working on these days? Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of carrying on this split intellectual existence where on one hand, I still very much work on um, modern, the modern state and modern party politics. And so, of course, uh, the Polish elections come very, uh, are, are very salient in my mind. Um, but what I'm starting is a new project on corruption and how, you know, I think partly because of these unsavory practices. And I think... There, I want to make two arguments in that in this new project. One is that what we consider corruption is simply politics, that corruption is this moderate intervention um, and practices that we consider that we would consider unsavory have been with us all along. And in some cases, they've actually sort of helped governors and rulers to govern. Um, and the second thing is that as a result of that, we ought not to spend our time, you know, trying to explain Nigeria and, you know, and Sudan and why they're so corrupt. We should really focus on the Swedens and the New Zealands of the world and sort of ask why they escaped, right? Why are they so different? So it's a book that builds on sort of, you know, a lot of uh, new advances in social psychology and sort of a, again, a kind of a more historical grounding of concepts that we take for granted today. Sounds like a wonderful book. Uh, I can't wait to read it. And <laughs> for the moment, I will thank you for uh, joining us today and for sharing so much uh I'm really covering such ground. I, it's it's a it's such an important book, and I'm really hope that all the listeners out there go out and buy it. Uh, Anagrama Abusa has published Sacred Foundations: The Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State with Princeton University Press this year, 2023. Uh, Anna, thank you so much for joining us today for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. This is just a delight.